And our scripture lesson is in Ephesians today, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now that Paul starts out saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Well, it is a great privilege for me to be here with you all this morning to worship with you, and it's a special privilege now to get to bring you God's Word. And the passage that we just read together is a short one. It's the opening words of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. And if you're anything like me, when you come to words like these at the opening of a letter, it's pretty easy to kind of jump right over them and not give them too much thought. It seems like Paul is offering something like a, just a pretty perfunctory greeting to the people that he is writing to. It'd be easy to think that, but if we thought that, we would be wrong. Isn't it true that God's word is so rich and deep? And my hope this morning is that we will get to spend some time meditating on just these short words to see that in them is actually far more than initially meets the eye, that we actually get in them a picture of the gospel. We get in them a description of the beginning and the end of the Christian life. So since it's a short passage, I'm going to read it again for us, and then I'll pray and we'll dive in together. This is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you please pray with me? Father, we come to you this morning. We come into your presence recognizing that we desperately need to hear from you. We might come in all sorts of different places and all sorts of positions of the heart, having had all sorts of different kinds of weeks leading up to this moment. Some of us might be here this morning encouraged and excited and in love with you. Some of us might be here this morning discouraged and doubting and questioning. Some of us might even be here this morning still exploring the claims of the Bible, exploring who you say you are. God, what we all have in common is that we all need to hear from you. So would you send us your Holy Spirit even now so that we would be able to hear your word and see Jesus Christ and be transformed because of it. Speak now, Lord, for we, your servants, are listening for you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. What do you want out of life? It's a big question. What do you want out of life? At the end of your days, what do you hope will have been true about your life experience? What do you hope you will have enjoyed or accomplished? If you're finding it difficult drumming up answers to those big questions on the fly, maybe we can make it a little more concrete and short term. What do you want out of your summer? Winter is coming again, isn't it? It'll be here before we know it. At least it feels that way to me as someone who grew up in the Southeast. So what what do you want to accomplish or enjoy even this summer? 
I imagine if I actually took a poll of the room, we would get some different kinds of answers, but I think we would also recognize some general themes. We would hear some recurring answers. We might hear something like, whether it's at the end of my life or even just this summer, I really hope I will enjoy time with my family, with the people that are dearest to me. Or I hope I'll make some meaningful contribution to my field of work. I hope I'll get to see beautiful places, experience wonderful things. Or maybe put negatively, I hope I will avoid suffering. Maybe not suffering altogether, but at least the really bad stuff. The cancer diagnosis, the phone call in the middle of the night. If we all actually took the time to give our honest, functional answer to these questions I've been asking you, we'd say lots of different things. And my hunch is that most of those things are are good. They're fine desires. Many of them even include some of God's greatest gifts to us. But what if our honest answers to these questions, what do you want at the end of your life? What do you hope will happen even this summer? What if they reflect desires that are not wrong or bad, but are insufficient? C.S. Lewis once wrote in his famous essay, The Weight of Glory, maybe you recognize these words. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. End quote. This morning we're going to answer three questions together in light of this short passage at the opening of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're going to answer first, who is Paul? Second, who are we? And third, what is the gospel? If you're a note taker or you find outlines helpful for following along, that's where we're headed this morning. Who is Paul? Who are we? And what is the gospel? But my hope, my goal is that by the end of our time together, we will be equipped to see that God has offered us so much more than the things that we in our ordinary lives, find it so easy to desire. So first, who is Paul? In the first century in the Roman Empire, it was customary for the author of a letter to name themselves on the front end of that letter, right? That's a little bit different than the way we typically write letters or more likely emails in our day and age. We often leave our name for the end, sincerely Ethan, love Ethan. But in Paul's day and age, they put it right at the beginning. So what is Paul doing? He is offering us so much more than just a perfunctory greeting, but he is stating who he is to his audience. He's saying that, hey, it's me, Paul, writing to you. And the next word out of his mouth is one of those words that if you've grown up in the church or have been connected to this particular church for a while. I'm sure you've heard it before. Many of you might be very familiar with it. It's the word apostle. But I have a hunch that this is one of those words in the New Testament, one of those Christian words that's loaded with meaning that we often hear and say, but kind of are a little confused about what it means. 
Maybe that's true for some of you. Maybe someone in the room, you, this is the first time you're hearing that word. What is an apostle? Well, let me put it this way. An apostle was to the New Testament what a prophet was to the Old Testament. The New Testament teaches that our Lord Jesus, after he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die, that he truly, bodily, and historically rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And because he cares for his people, because he loves his church, he chose a certain number of men to represent his authority on the earth during this foundational time in the life of God's people. Now that he had brought in this new covenant, and these men were called apostles. And they were the men through which he would bring the New Testament scriptures that we read today. Why does this matter? It matters because when we open up Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we should hear these words carrying the same authority as if Jesus himself was speaking them. Maybe some of you own a Bible at home or remember studying a Bible growing up that had Jesus' words in the Gospels in red letters. There's nothing wrong with red letter Bibles. But what we need to see is that when Paul is writing these words to us, we hear them as if they were coming from the mouth of God himself. This is God's word for his people. That was true in Paul's day when he wrote to these Ephesian believers, and it's true for you and me today. So in other words, to put it very simply, Paul's introducing himself, and what do we learn about Paul? Paul is a big deal. He's a big deal. But if you read another New Testament book, the book of Acts, that gives the early history of the church, we learn something else about Paul. We learn that he hasn't always been named Paul, but he once went by the name Saul. And we learn that he has not always been an apostle. He was not always a believer in Jesus Christ, a follower of the one true God. Paul spent years of his life actively persecuting Christians, actively persecuting those who claimed Jesus as their Messiah. He would have seen families separated. He would have witnessed children being yanked from their parents' arms. We know that he witnessed and approved of the execution, the martyrdom, the unjust killing of people that trusted in Jesus. You can read about one of those examples in Acts 7 with the martyrdom of Stephen. So we come to Paul and Ephesians 1 and we learn at least one thing about him, that he's a big deal, not because of himself, but because of God's grace. But when we read other parts of the New Testament, it would not be overdramatic or stretching the case to say that Paul in his former life, when he was known as Saul, in modern terms, was a terrorist. So how did this man, who was a terrorist, who describes himself in another place as the chief of sinners, how does he come to be not only a believer in Jesus, but an apostle, someone who would speak with the authority of Christ himself? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. He met Jesus. 
He encountered the risen Savior as he was journeying to a city called Damascus. Christ appeared to him in a vision and interrupted the awful trajectory of his life. And that encounter with Christ changed him forever. Why does this matter for us today to remember who Paul is even as we're considering these opening words? One thing that I hope we will never get tired of hearing, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, no matter how old you are, no matter how mature you are in your faith, I'm sure many of you I could learn a lot from about what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. No matter where you're at in your walk, I hope we never get tired of hearing this, which is something I love to remind students of at the U of I. There is no one who is so good to be beyond the need of God's grace. But there is also no one who is so bad to be beyond the reach of God's grace. And the Apostle Paul shows us that, doesn't he? Some of you might be here this morning, and if you're honest with yourself and with God, you feel a little bit like a lost cause. Or maybe you don't feel totally like a lost cause, but there's a certain area of your life, a certain struggle that feels hopeless. You might feel plagued by guilt because of something you've done or shame because of something that's been done to you. Others of you here this morning might have someone you dearly love who's running away from God who wants nothing to do with him. And as much as you want them to know Christ, to know his grace, if you're honest, you've, you've begun to give up hope that God can do anything about it. No matter where you're at this morning, I think we all need this reminder that Paul in his very life shows us no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Do you still believe that? Do you still pray like that's true? Do you expect God to show up in the messy, needy, and difficult parts of your life? Do you believe that it's true for the people across the political aisle or the people that you struggle to get along with? If you're here this morning and you've yet to really have an encounter with Jesus, you don't know if you really know him, then I want to plead with you for a moment that today you can call out to him. We can't even begin to imagine what God can do in our lives if we really encounter the risen Jesus like Paul did, whether that's for the first time or for the thousandth time. That's how God brings this incredible change to Paul and to us. So that's who Paul is. We could say a whole lot more, couldn't we? But for the sake of time, we'll move on to our next question. Who are we? Now, I've already mentioned that it's very possible some of you here in this room this morning have yet to put your faith in Jesus. Maybe you're still exploring the claims of the Bible. Maybe you grew up in the church, but you still have big questions. If that's true of you, I'm I'm very glad that you're here. And what we're talking about this morning is for you. It's something I want you to consider. But it is true in a sense that when Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians, he has a particular audience in mind, and that audience 
we could summarize with the word, the church. It's the people of God. He's writing to Christians, to those who have put their faith in Jesus, to those who belong to God's family and his kingdom. And Paul describes, even in just this short passage, he describes the church, he describes Christians in a couple of different ways. But I hope for those of us that do trust in Jesus will be instructive for us. It will remind us of who God says we are which is so much more important than what we think about ourselves or what the world says about us. But if you're here this morning and you're still exploring, then I hope these words will still be helpful for you as you'll see more clearly what it is you're being invited into, what you're being invited to consider. So first, Christians, the church, are described by Paul as saints. Now, saints in the Bible are not extra super holy people. They're not like the Navy SEALs Team 6 of religion. It's not a term that is reserved for people who have made a big impact on the world or people that can perform miracles or anything like that. Saints is just the word in the New Testament that describes believers, that describes Christians, it describes you and me. But what does it mean? A saint is someone who has been set apart. Someone who is holy. It means a holy one. And when we hear that language of being set apart, of being holy, we should ask two questions. First, what are we set apart from? And second, what are we set apart for? I'll answer both of those questions quickly for you. A saint is someone who has been set apart from the world and for relationship with God, for communion with Him, for belonging in His family, to be a citizen of His kingdom. In the Old Testament, one occasion... When this word holy is being used, the same related word that is applied to believers in the New Testament, is it's applied to pots and vessels. So if pots and vessels can be holy, can be set apart, then you know that this word isn't talking about being stuffy or having uh, moral rigor. It ultimately means to be dedicated to God. And because we are dedicated to God, set apart for Him, A result is that saints ought to look different. We're set apart. Our lives should look different. When we hear that, we run into a problem, don't we? Very often, or at least more often than we would like, Christians don't look that different from the world around them. Divorce rates in the church are marginally different from those in the broader society. I wish I could tell you that sex scandals and power abuse scandals are limited to Hollywood and Washington, but that that would not be true. Some of you have maybe even been hurt or burned by someone who claimed to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've been hurt by the church in the past. 
So often Christians fail to live up to our identity together as saints, as people who are called to be dedicated to Jesus and to represent his love and his character to the watching world. So my goal this morning is not to bash us or to make us feel bad. It's actually quite the opposite. But I do want us all together to ask the question, do our lives look different? Can people look at your life and learn something about the character of God, about his gentleness, about his wisdom, about his mercy? People won't know that you're a saint because you wear a cross or listen to Christian music or anything like that. Those things are fine. People will know you're a saint when you look like and feel like and smell like our Savior Jesus. Not perfectly by any stretch of the imagination, but truly. The same Jesus whom notorious sinners, tax collectors and prostitutes, loved to be around. His holiness did not keep sinners at bay. It drew them to him. And the same ought to be true and can be true for you and me as we experience the Spirit's work in our lives. The world doesn't need Christians who look like the world around us. It needs Christians who look like Jesus. So before we move on, I just just want to ask you to dream with me a little bit. What would it look like for this church, this family, this gathering of God's people to continue week after week to grow into that identity, which, as we'll talk about more in a moment, is not something you earn or achieve, but one that has been given to you. I think that would be amazing if this community, as I'm sure it is already, increasingly became a place for that. So Paul describes the church, he describes Christians as saints, dedicated ones, holy ones, set-apart ones. He also describes them as faithful In Christ Jesus. We hear that word faithful and you might think of some synonyms. You think of faithful and you might think of obedient or reliable or trustworthy. And those are words that ought to describe Christians, I hope, in increasing measure. But I actually don't think that that is what Paul has in mind here in the opening of the book of Ephesians. When Paul describes God's people, the church, these Ephesian believers, and us as faithful in Christ Jesus, I don't think he's focusing on our character in that comment. Even though character flows out of what he is focusing on. What he's focusing on is that a Christian is someone who is full of faith in Jesus. Someone who looks to him, who rests in him, who finds their all in him. The fundamental message of the Bible is not about what we do, but about what Christ has done. God is concerned to bring 
transformation in your life, as we've been talking about. He cares about the way that his church lives towards one another and towards the world. But the way that he brings that transformation, we could say, comes through an encounter with Jesus as Paul had. And it comes not by looking primarily at ourselves and our failings or our success or any such thing. It comes by looking to Jesus. Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane said it beautifully. When he said, for every look you take at your sin, take ten looks at Christ. The Christian is the one whose faith is in Jesus. So the good news is we're not defined by what we do, but by what Christ has done for us. That brings us finally to our last section. We've seen who Paul is. He's the terrorist who became an apostle, a beautiful example of the transforming power of God's grace. We've seen who we are. We're saints, and we're those who are are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, what is the gospel? We have been talking about this question already, but we're going to focus in on it even more narrowly now. What is the message at the very core of the Bible, at the very core of our faith I want to draw your attention to just two things. It's the title of the sermon this morning, Grace and Peace. Grace shows up 12 times in the letter to the Ephesians. Peace shows up eight times. It's not that long of a letter. So even without studying it, which I encourage you to do, you can pick up from that that these words are not just a part of a perfunctory greeting. They're actually inviting us into not just the center of the message of this letter, but the center of the message of the whole Bible. So let's start with grace. Grace is a word in the Bible that means something like God's favor or God's gift. And it's a word that we're familiar with. But because it's a word we're familiar with, it can also be a word that comes with some misunderstandings, some misconceptions. And I think very often, if not consciously, at least functionally, our understanding of grace is only half true. And I want to illustrate that with uh, a short story. I want you to picture for a moment a child who's in the grocery store with his mother, sitting in the grocery cart. And the child is sitting nicely. He's not doing anything, but he's sitting and waiting for his mother to do the shopping. And at the end of the trip, his mother very kindly comes and offers this child an ice cream cone. And we hear that, oh, that's, that's a sweet picture. Maybe you remember your mom or dad doing that for you when you were a child. We hear that story and we think, that's grace. And that's partially right. Technically speaking, the child didn't do anything to deserve that ice cream cone. He was just sitting there. He was along for the ride, and his mom came and offered him this good gift. But that's only half of the picture. The biblical teaching on grace is more like this. The child is sitting in a grocery cart while his mother is shopping for groceries, but instead of sitting there quietly, he's screaming and throwing a fit And saying awful things to his mother. And he even slaps her in the face. And then at the end of it all, in love, in gentleness, in kindness, she comes and she still offers her child an ice cream cone. Grace 
which is at the very foundation of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have a relationship with God, is not just God's kindness or favor or gifts in the absence of merit. It is God's favor, His kindness, His forgiveness, His welcome through Jesus Christ in the presence of our active demerit or active undeserving. It's not that we deserve nothing from God. We actually deserve something from God, and it's His wrath, His judgment, His anger. Doesn't that make God's grace all the more astounding and beautiful when we really remember that that's true, not just in our heads, but in our hearts and in our lives? At the very beginning of the Christian life and every step along the way, we are utterly dependent on God's grace, on his favor, on his kindness that we not only don't deserve, but actively undeserve. And God's grace in Jesus meets us right where we are, but it doesn't leave us there. So that brings us to the second word that Paul uses, grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about grace and peace, we have to ask a question. Paul's putting these words together for a reason, and there are different explanations given. The Greek word grace is very similar to the normal word that was used in Greco-Roman culture for just greetings. So some people think Paul's just kind of saying greetings, oh, and also peace, shalom, this, this important concept from the Old Testament. And I don't know, maybe there's something to that, but I think especially in the context of this letter, there's more going on. Paul is joining these words together for a reason. Why? Why does he say grace and peace to you at the outset of this letter? Well, I think Martin Lloyd-Jones, preacher in the 20th century, had it right when he said this. He said, grace is the beginning. Peace is the end. Grace is the beginning. Peace is the end. Is the end. In other words, God's grace is his initiation in our lives, but his peace is his intention for our lives, where he wants to take us. And just as we can sometimes be confused, if not consciously, at least functionally, about grace, the same can also be true for peace. We think of peace and we might merely think of absence of conflict, absence of warfare. And those are good things, right? We prayed earlier for the war in Ukraine. But the biblical view of peace, what the Old Testament Hebrew word describes with this this word shalom, is so much more than that. It's wholeness. It's flourishing. It's all things right, but at the center of it all is not just an absence of conflict, but a presence of communion with God. Friendship with Him. Relationship with the lover of of our souls, intimacy with him. The grace of God is what enables people like Paul and people like me and people like you to be freed from what we deserve because of our moral failures. But God's goal for you is not just that you would get a get out of hell free card, but that you would be invited into the most soul satisfying experience in existence, communion relationship, friendship with him. 
the all-beautiful, all-powerful, all-majestic, creator of heaven and earth, who, notice in our passage, is also called our Father. The grace and peace that is extended to you, it does not just come to you from a king or a judge or a creator on high, although God is all those things, but our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who's made all of it possible so that we can, as we prayed earlier, really address God as our Father. He made the way for us to be adopted into his family. I want to begin to wrap us up by sharing a story that I heard recently from another pastor that I think illustrates the point really well. I want you to imagine later this summer, you go to downtown Chicago. Now, as soon as I say that, I bet some of you are like, that sounds great. And others of you are like, I'm never doing that. But roll, roll with me for a moment. You're, you're on a trip to downtown Chicago, and you're going to an amazing restaurant. Friends that love you have gotten you this reservation months in advance because this is one of those restaurants that you can't even get your foot in the door if you don't have a reservation months in advance. It has a Michelin star. All of the reviews on Google are five stars. Everyone's raving about it. It has this world-renowned chef. And you show up at this restaurant, and you walk in, and as soon as you enter the front door, the hostess is looking at you a little funny. And you eventually work up the courage to walk up to the hostess. And she says to you, where's your jacket? Where's your blazer? See, this is one of those fancy restaurants that requires a specific kind of attire, a blazer or a jacket for men, maybe an evening ball gown for the ladies in the room. But you've shown up and you don't have your jacket. And the hostess looks at you and says, where's your jacket? Did you forget it in your car? And you're looking at her and you're thinking, no, I did not forget it in my car. I don't have a jacket. You've driven all this way. You've gone through all this labor. Your friends have done done so much for you. And you begin to turn around and walk away in shame and disappointment. But then the chef shows up right as you're about to leave. And he takes off his jacket and he gives it to you. And somehow, magically, his jacket like perfectly fits you. And after he gives you his jacket, he invites you to come and sit at his table, the chef's table. And then he prepares for you this elaborate 10-course meal that is like perfectly suited to your palate, to your taste buds. And he eats with you and talks with you about the food and you enjoy the evening together. Now, I want you to imagine at the end of the night, the chef looks at you and says, what was your favorite part of the evening? You might say different things to that question, but I'm almost certain that none of us in the room would say, my favorite part of the evening was when you gave me your jacket. That jacket was a good gift. It was what enabled you to go into this restaurant. Without that jacket, you would not have access But it wasn't the point. It wasn't the end goal. God's grace to you and your life. We could even focus more narrowly on the grace of justification. That your guilty record has been taken from you and replaced with the obedient perfection of Jesus Christ the moment you put your trust in him. That is an amazing truth. 
I hope we will each remember it and meditate on it every day. It is like an engine for growth in the Christian life, but it's not the end goal. God's goal was not just to forgive your sins and rescue you from hell, as important as that is, but to invite you into a enjoyable, life-satisfying, and eternal relationship with him. The point is not the jacket, but the meal, the fellowship, the friendship with the God who made us, the lover of our souls. So I want to ask you again, what, what do you want out of life? What do you want out of this summer? What do you hope to enjoy or accomplish? My goal this morning was not to get you to stop wanting or desiring those things, but to help us to see together just from these short couple of verses that God offers us so much more in Jesus Christ. He meets us rebellious, needy sinners like Paul right where we are. He makes us into his people, saints and faithful ones in Christ Jesus, and he extends to us his grace, which offers us a taste even now of fellowship with him, peace with him, but we will fully enjoy that one day when Christ comes back and we will see him face to face. That's amazing news. I hope it'll not just sit with us this morning, but transform us as we go from here. Would you please pray with me? Thank you, Father, that you offer to us grace and peace with your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for rescuing us, horribly lost sinners as we are, like Paul, horribly lost sinners like me. Father, as we prepare even to fellowship with our Lord Jesus at his table, as we prepare to go out from here, would you send us your Holy Spirit so that we might become more and more what you have already said is true about us? Would you increase your grace in us until we attain the full enjoyment of the peace that Christ offers? Pray these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.